Hello everybody and welcome to this, the latest episode of the Rewatch Project with Hannah and Mike. I am Mike and with me as always is Hannah. How are you this evening? I'm well. It's uh, Saturday here Saturday. in Wellington, New Zealand. I love Saturdays. Wow. Because I could wear my pyjamas all day. I think you need to explain this because I don't think you're, the demographic of this podcast is necessarily the uh uh well our son is completely obsessed with captain underpants and harold and george the two main characters of captain underpants aside from said titular hero um uh they love saturdays because they don't have to go to school that's their saturday celebration song and now our saturday celebration song indeed but, uh, but in we're fact, not... our son sung that to me in bed last night when I put him to bed because he knew it was going to be Saturday today. Wow, that's mm. impressive. Yeah. Good on him. Um, but we're not here for Captain Underpants talk, um, at least not officially. Uh, we are here to talk about season two of Twin Peaks. Uh, could you be getting to maybe a greater level of specificity for us, Hannah, about which episode we're covering? Sure. This episode is entitled Coma. It aired on the 6th of October, 1990, first time round. Uh, synopsis says, Albert determines that neither Leo nor Sharks killed Laura, but he is unable to find any leads into who shot Cooper. Cooper says they must find the third man who he believes to be Bob, the grey-haired man. It is directed by David Lynch and written by... Harley Payton. Excellent. Uh, interesting episode, this, because I think this is a, one of the great underrated episodes of Twin Peaks because yeah. it comes directly after the big feature-length pilot episode, mm. um, and it's before things really ramp up with you know a s- certain storylines climaxing in about five or six episodes' time. Mm. Um, but people forget, you know, but this is, you know, it's directed by David Lynch, um, not that many episodes are, so that's notable. Um, and there's some really good stuff in this episode, uh, so I'm really looking forward to watching this. I feel that this episode feels very much, although the teleplay is by Harley Payton, um, it feels very much like a continuation of the episode that we watched. Right. Uh, you could probably watch them all in one go and they would feel of a piece mm. uh, with each other. I, I think the thing that surprised me most about the pilot is considering the length of it, it did not feel... The pilot? That, uh, sorry, not the pilot, the season opener. Oh, the, the season um, two premiere. Yeah. Uh, premiere, that was the word I was looking yeah. for, not pilot. Um, I was surprised how quickly it viewed... Well, it's interesting because we talked about this, about how David Lynch's episodes, he paces his scenes so slowly and they're so long that um, there's probably only the same amount of scenes in it for there being a regular length episode. They're just longer. I mean, it's interesting because Twin Peaks, The Return, um, when it was announced, it was announced as a nine-episode limited series. And about six to eight months after it got announced... David Lynch left the project um, and there was a big fuss and eventually he came back. And when he came back, they doubled it to 18 episodes. And basically what had happened was they'd written it um, and they'd worked out it would be about nine episodes. And then when Lynch really started planning it in his head, he realised it would actually need to be 18 episodes because of the way he paced things. Mm. But And obviously that means double the money, double mm. the production cost and Showtime bolts. And he was like, well... This is what it needs. This mm. is a story. It's one big movie. Um, if if you can't pay that, if you can't if you can't do it, then fine. But you know, adios. Mm. And eventually, they relented and well, ended up being. I, I like the fact that he's like, uh, "This is how it's going to be done, or it's yeah. just not going to be." done. And it done. wasn't like a hissy fit. No, you know, I mean, like I remember when he tweeted, but that he there's was no, leaving, there's he was no like, point like half-assing the story if if it's your story. Yeah. And he himself was like basically acknowledged that, well, you know, in fairness to them, I did kind of change, move the goalposts, mm. you know, um, but that was part of the creative process. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, I hadn't written Twin Peaks in like 30 years, so uh, it was a learning experience. But but I think that this is an episode that gets forgotten because there's no nothing 
major happens in it, but it's just it's quintessential Twin Peaks, and I think you really start to see um, David Lynch going nuts. I mean, I always think about um, that great meme uh, where it's some nineties teenager with their cap back in baggy jeans doing the gangster sign, but with David Lynch's face superimposed on it, just says, mm. you've been lynched. <laughs> it's episodes like this where I think, yeah, you get you get proper lynched with this episode. Yeah. Um, but a um, couple of quick bits of housekeeping. A reminder that we appreciate feedback at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave us comments on our YouTube channel, and if they have a uh, feedbacky vibe about them, then we will include them on the conversation. We are also on Twitter and on Instagram, where in both cases we are at rewatchproj, and we appreciate uh, reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And please do check out our friend shows, including Chinstroker vs. Panzer, his film, her movie, uh, Film Bastards, The Iron Sea, not The Iron Sea, but why have I suddenly started thinking about that again recently? Uh, the Good, The Bad and The Odd uh, and the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Um, and um, yeah, should we get into it? Let's do it. All right, so we're going to hit pause. We're going to watch Coma. Um, I'm not going to say it. Uh, the second episode of season two of Twin Peaks. And uh, But I'm thinking it. Believe me, I'm thinking it. All I'm uh, thinking is, I love Saturdays. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so on that note, we're going to hit pause. We're going to watch an episode of Twin Peaks. And then we will uh, return and we will say what we thought of it and give initial reactions and all that good stuff. So I'll be right back. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and welcome to Film Bastards, a podcast where three friends, two of them married and two of them podcasting life partners, chat everything from new releases, trailers, news, and an eclectic mix of other film goodies. Oh, and many, many, many tangents. You can find them by searching your podcast provider, or check them out on Twitter and Instagram by searching Film Bastards. You never know, you might like it. And if you don't, well, we don't really give a f- so we have just finished watching the second episode of season two of Twin Peaks from uh, October 1990. Um, before we get into breaking down the episode and working our way through the plot as we are wont to do, um, do you have any initial thoughts or reactions to this episode, Hannah? I know why you think this is a forgotten classic. Because it has just your... <laughs> you. We go walking to get. I'd actually forgotten that that scene was in this episode. I thought that was later. That isn't why, but that that's. Uh, we'll get to it. But uh, any other thoughts, Hannah? Uh, um, not to dismiss your your um, specific thoughts there. Uh, well, I like the fact that I didn't even actually have to say it. You knew what I was about to say. Well, we know each other very well, don't we? But we do. I. I really enjoyed this episode. Um, I like the little bits of detail, like Lucy ripping the tape off Andy's head and Hmm. um, uh, I'm trying to think of some other bits, but like just the, like the messing with the seats to sit down next to Renette's. The details. Yeah. Yeah. Just little things that you don't, really need but uh you don't get that anywhere perfect. else do you yeah um we get old domino sucker back again yes with his key ring uh, which yeah. you know i'll tell you what that's that's It'll an etsy that's an etsy store there. thing waiting to happen isn't it i'm uh <laughs> if you ever come home with a domino and a key ring that's it divorce. i think it's pretty bitching myself it's divorce wow okay yeah and then if you suck it I'm calling well, then, the then, is that is that going so far that I would actually win you back? <laughs> no, like, no, I'd be calling the police immediately. I always think about the Eddie Izzard thing. About I can't how, prove it, but I'm pretty sure he's murdered someone. It, I, I, it's like the uh, the Eddie Izzard thing about how um, cool and uncool is like a circular thing. Like you can be really cool, but if you go too far with something, you circle back to uncool. Mm. Like people who have like a matchstick in the side of their mouth, it's kind of cool. Matchstick in both sides of your mouth. <laughs> you just look crazy. <laughs> and I feel like the domino thing is somewhere in, in that yeah. spectrum there as well. There were a few moments that, like, a borderline too scary for me. Um, and, and it was the same at the end of the last episode, you know, with Laura, the flashback of Laura in the train car and 
her screaming and the blood on the mouth and Bob and, you know, and in this episode with Bob crawling over the couch towards uh, Maddie, mm-hmm. um, I I struggle with that yeah. stuff. That's, you know that I'm not, I, I don't enjoy scary films. And one of the things, I don't I, I don't like being scared. Uh, one of the things about that as well is it's kind of it's bringing horror to the living room. Like yeah. she's not on her own. The lights are on. You know, it almost feels like, you know, there are rules to horror. It's kind of like you know you you, you almost you almost have to deserve it. You have to choose to go well, down into the basement. They were singing a pretty fucking. Rain, so. <laughs> um. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's a good. Um, it is a sort of a good forgotten episode. Um, I did laugh that um, while we were watching, I said to Mike, "God, that little kid just looks like a a child version oh, of David Lynch. David Lynch." And Mike said, "Well, it is David Lynch's son, yeah. Um, and yeah, he he really is a spit of him." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite uncanny, isn't it? Mm. I think that's why he was cast. I think he was just. It's an interesting visual. Even even just the, like um, the the melody of his voice yeah. is the same. It's really unnerving. and the fact that he's dressed very formally as well. Yeah, kind of adds to that. And quite high hair yeah. for a kid. Um, yeah. What did you think? No, I really like this episode. I mean, for me, this is the kind of this is the flavor of Twin Peaks that I probably like the most. You know where. It's not too kind of northern exposure-y. Uh, oh, wouldn't this be like a you know, gee whiz, great place to live? Mm. But at the same time, it's not full on gonzo. Not even can't even tell whether the sound's working on the file or not. Kind mm. of, uh, um, but it does have an edge about it. But I think in some ways, apart from the pilot, it's probably the most straightforward episode that Lynch has directed. Like you know, there, like there are moments where you know there'll be a reveal. And the music will kind of become dramatic, and the camera will zoom in. There's, there's some moments of quite of quite conventional television filmmaking, which is surprising for Lynch. Mm. But then, conversely, there are like three or four moments that are just undeniably Lynchian and quite unlike anything that you would have seen on television at the time. Like uh, what? Uh, well, well, we'll get to that. Um, mm. But there was there was also, um, I think, a bit like the last episode, a real thickening of the mythology of the show as well mm. you know and you know doubling down on um the you know the, the for want of a better word paranormal elements of the show yeah um you know that were hinted at in the, the last episode it's as though the show now isn't it's not just quirky mm. um you know and, and i think that that's probably a bridge too far for a lot of the audience. I mean, now it wouldn't be an issue, but I think, no. you know, if you think about how revolutionary that first se- season was, it was a pretty big ask to then accept, well, to expect, I should say, the audience to accept another leap, you know, like that. But uh, it's quite interesting watching, well, re watching this while we're in the later seasons of The X Files. Well, you can as see well. the influence that it had on The X Files. They're very complimentary things to be watching at the same time. Well, there's a lot time. of the same cast, and, you know. Yeah, but like that aside, just thematically, yeah. um, there's a lot that crosses over. Yeah. Um, and if, if anyone's looking for something to watch, in conjunction with Twin Peaks, I'd say you do far worse than the X Files. Well, it's like I said about how you know wrapped in plastic the Twin Peaks fanzine. Uh, it was one of the first the Twin Peaks fan community, basically, were the first fan community to embrace the X Files because mm. they saw the X Files and, and realised that that you you could get something from that that you were maybe craving in the absence of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it felt like, oh, okay, this this is going to be our next show. Especially the further the X Files goes along. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're just at the beginning of, well, we're about three episodes into season seven. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very Twin Peaksian. Yeah, mm. yeah, and 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 it's interesting about how you know people do. You do see this evolution, and it's in the same way that when the X Files came along, it was like. Oh great! Here's another show we can embrace. Buffy 
the Vampire Slayer was that to the X-Files. Mm. The X-Files audience was one of the first audiences to embrace Buffy because there was a lot of the same writers and a lot of the same production crew. Yeah. But it felt like, a, oh, okay, here's another show where we're going to get a mythology and an ongoing storyline. It's got a lot else. of the humour. Yeah, and um, the, you know the fact that you, you'll have these epic storylines, but then you'll have like hyena people or villains with glowy eyes the next mm. week. You know, there's, there's an element of that. It's, you can see a, a lineage really of those shows. You mm. know, from you know the fan base kind of hopping off one onto the other, and then hopping from that one to the next one. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that going on. So it's interesting going back and rewatching them outside of that context a little bit. But mm. uh, well, should we get into the breakdown? Yeah, cool. Okay. We open up with the with Cooper and Albert, and something that I, I, I haven't mentioned before, because and I think that this is kind of at the core of the rewatch project, the idea of uh, you know watching something that you've watched before, is something that's very different about watching Twin Peaks now. Aside from all of the other contextual stuff, is when you go to watch Twin Peaks now, you know what it is. You know yeah. that it ran for two seasons and got cancelled. There was a movie and then there was this sequel series. Mm. Um, so you know it's this finite thing, yeah. like a book, and you're going to sit down and you're going to watch it. You know, maybe there'll be more someday, but who knows? Mm. Um, but the thing that was one of the things that was really exciting about watching the show at the time that can't be replicated now is there was no end in sight. You were what you'd watched the episode yeah. of Twin Peaks, and as far as you knew, this was going to be on for years. You mm. know, so it felt like that kind of reek. It was a different experience, you know, mm. watching something, knowing that this was this week's episode of this thing that could continue on forever. Yeah, you know, or for many years. And when you watch it now, it's much more of a kind of curated experience yeah very you know? much so and i was just thinking about that when and i made the note when we we're watching the opening credits because i just remember you know you'd sit down it'd be nine o'clock on a tuesday night or whatever it was on in the country that you'd watch mm. and the opening credits would start and it was it was twin peaks night mm. you know and that's yeah. not something that you and that was something that was so powerful about the show coming back it wasn't more content Mm. Um, you know, to use a modern word, or oh, we're going to get find out more answers or get a sequel. It was more, oh, I get to sit down every week and hear that theme tune and enter that world. Yeah, you know, and knowing that there's more to come. And actually, that's a good point about entering the world. Like the 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 opening credits are so slow and measured that it kind of does it almost lowers your heartbeat, gets you yeah. On that different plane, you need. You know to what be it reminds me of? It? How films from gosh the thirties through to the seventies would have overtures before mm, them. Like yeah. you'd come in or entrance music, mm. and sometimes on the DVDs and Blu-rays they'll include them. Mm. And the whole point of that was to just vibe you into it. You yeah, because I mean, for a theme tune, the Twin Peaks opening theme is quite long. Um. So. You know, to have that, it it does, it does give you that sort of um, breathing space to get prepared. And there's no percussion on it at all. There's no drums or um, you know even like um, tambourine or any kind of percussive mm. instrument. It's pure Imagine ambience. Imagine a tambourine in there, <laughs> <laughs> all triangle at the end. <laughs> yeah, that'd work. Um, so we open up with um, Cooper and Albert, and this is this. I, I use the word tableau many times in this because this because David Lynch is, is an artist, is a fine artist, mm. um, and a photographer and a painter. But there's something his establishing shots are so composed. So here mm. you've got Cooper and Albert sitting at the table. You've got um, like a barbershop quartet, mm. um, sort of gently humming some music behind them and they're standing at a gradient and it it just looks like a painting you know like the famous paintings that you see like on people's like toilet walls you know like of like uh like uh edwardian uh picnickers or something you know just sort of like sitting on the lawn and well it, it makes just... me think of like the american classics you know the the mum holding the turkey up while everyone looks well, norman at rockwell you know yeah, that... i mean and that was a big influence on blue velvet the opening title sequence of blue velvet is you know rockwellian and, and lynchian when people talk about lynchian 
it's a kind of it's it's both an appreciation and a subversion a subversion of Norman Rockwell. You know, mm. Cooper is telling Albert about um, the Happy Generation, which is part of his whole Tibetan philo- philosophy. And you start to see a slightly gentler side to Albert as well. Like he actually asks how Cooper is. I know. sort of feel like uh, Albert's, he's like blatantly autistic. Um, yeah, or Asperger's. Or some, something like that. And he knows that it's social convention to, uh, like he's Sheldon Cooper. Well, he kind of says it. He says it was, yeah. it's, it's, it's like a social convention to yeah. inquire after somebody who's like, been recently I, plugged three I, times. I don't really think he sort of is interested, but feels. That it's a bit like Sheldon insisting if someone's sad they have to have a tea. Well, I almost feel like with or Albert, a, a hot beverage. Like he says, so, some David Lynch characters have very um, intense and well considered internal lives, whereas other characters are archetypes. Mm. And I feel like Albert is an archetype. He's the archetype of the hard boiled, hard nosed, no nonsense gumshoe detective and oh, I, I I don't agree with that uh, uh, I, I okay I, I wouldn't put gumshoe detective on him no I feel like he's part he's a character like somebody out of like the FBI story or the the original untouchables TV show one of those kind of um you know just the facts man you know one of mm. those kind of characters and so I don't think that Albert that's one of the reasons why I've got a more gentler attitude towards him than you have is the fact that I kind of don't hold him responsible for his actions because I don't even see him as a person. He's kind of a um, representation of an archetype mm. that I think Lynch is having fun with mm. in the same way that I think um, there are a few characters in Twin Peaks. James is another one of those. James isn't meant to be a person. James is meant to be a representation of the screen. Teenage hormones? Uh, uh, well, not even teenage hormones, but just the kind of the... You see the um, eyes he was making at Maddie? The, 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 the sort of the, the, the sensitive rebel sort of character from fiction. He's not meant to be a person, whereas I think somebody feelings, like... He's got feelings, man. Sorry? He's got feelings, yeah, man. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and that's why the character is... That's why, irony uh, aside, I defend the character. Is I think people miss the point a little bit. I think he is meant to be kind of ridiculous, and the show cut calls that out, and and it calls it out in this episode as well. And um, but but I think that the, but then there are characters who do have internal lives. Characters like Ed and Norma, mm-hmm. who you understand their pain, you understand their emotional complex. arcs and yeah. narratives, you know. And oh go on. I was just going to say something really random, but did you notice that James's hair is far less black now? Oh, is it? Yeah, it's great. Because he's actually got ginger hair. Too, it was way too dark to start with. The thing is, we live in the age, the age now, so I'm noticing all manner of hair stuff. Like, I didn't realise that Gillian Anderson dyed her hair red in the X-Files. She looks bloody hot. No, but but when you watch it in HD, it's, she's, it's really obviously dyed hair. But I didn't think I didn't think that back in 1997 or whatever, you know. Mm. But um, and but James and James Marshall is a ginger, but dyes his hair mm. black in Twin Peaks as well. Yeah, because in the pilot, it's it's black as midnight. Oh, you know, on the yeah, 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 it really is. Um, and it really it's far too dark for him. Yeah. So it's quite yeah. I just I really noticed it in this episode. It was like ah. Oh, Brown, that's a better colour for you. I love the a bit of moments of levity as well when they're talking about um, the sort of stomach contents and uh, Cooper's uh, uh, Albert was he like he's, he had a license plate, yeah. you know, bike wheel or something. I'm mm. referencing Jaws, I think that is. Yeah, but I do like the way that like when uh, Cooper's like, oh, it's you know really nice of you to inquire about me, Albert. Like, don't get sentimental. Like immediately, yeah. he just cuts cuts straight back. Yeah, and. Um, he mentions Wyndham Earl uh, escaping from a mental institution. This is Cooper's uh, previous um, partner, which um, leaves him a little bit concerned. I've not heard about him before. Yeah, and, and it's funny because there's a really weird crossfade here that confused me at the time. And even now I don't quite get where he's telling him about how he's escaped. And Cooper's like, that's really... And then he does that thing where the dialogue fades and this ominous music comes in and the camera pans across to an an Asian character watching. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I, 
that's a completely different storyline. But it almost implies that that's part to do with that. I thought Windham Earl was going to be there, yeah, you know, when I first saw really it. Or when I like, first watched it, I was like, is that Windham Earl? Because you don't know anything yeah, about him. It does really feel like that should be Windham Earl who's watching him. It, it, yeah, it, I I had that thought too. It's a really odd choice, and mm. I'm, I'm not sure kind of why. Mm. But um, we see Donna go on the Meals on Wheels, and she meets uh, Mrs. Tremond. Uh, and this is, again, Lynchian tableau. Even before she goes in the room, you've got this mid-shot mm. of the boy silently sitting in his chair in his tuxedo and the old lady lying in bed, just sort of both just staring off into nothingness, almost as though... They've been there for days, just sat like that, you know, mm. waiting for Donna to come in. And they've got that same feeling of existing outside of time that characters like the bellhop and um, the one-armed man and... Um, well, how often do you see a child in a tuxedo? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, you know, th- th- these are the choices. And it's straight. it feels like straight out of Eraserhead or one of Lynch's early, uh, you know, black and white... Um, experimental films mm. when donna comes in uh, he's the boy says um and i know you don't like this being a quote of on but it is worth mentioning these things um because they're kind of enigmatic and esoteric he says um sometimes things happen just like this and clicks his fingers mm. um and we get the first of what will be many references right through to the end of the the reboots, the the um, sequel series in the from the from two thousand and seventeen, one of the first of many references to creamed corn, mm. uh, and we see the young boy who apparently is studying magic, uh, make it disappear, and again this and it appears in his hands, and that's a great image, just a boy with a handful of creamed corn, and um, it's it's another great you know, example. If that was either of our children, they would not be that calm. No, not at all. Yeah, they'd be quite difficult to direct. It's, it's another example of um, the weirdness being the lack of reaction from our character, who in this case mm. is Donna. She's just like, oh, that's nice. What a cool trick. You know, she's not yeah. phased no, at all. No, she's not. Um, and, and that's kind of almost as weird as the thing that she's not reacting to. Yeah. When they mention Harold Smith, the boy says, Jeune Homme Solitaire, which um, is French for I am a lonely soul. Mm. Presumably, at this point, at least, in reference to uh, the fact that he's a shut-in. Yeah. So they mention Mr. Smith, and then we cut back to the Tremonds, the Mrs. Tremond and her grandson, uh, and he says in a complete dead pan voice, she seemed like a nice girl. We go to run it. We get in a bit of business with the chairs. And my feeling on this is I, I don't know this at all, but I'm convinced that what happened was they came to shoot this scene, David Lynch was like, how do these chairs work? Looked under them, read the instructions, and saw that they were kind of oddly convoluted, that you have mm. to pull them up, and just thought, I'm going to put that in the scene. Mm. You know, and, it, and it's, you know, it stops the story dead. And it's so funny as well, you so you hear so often now, again, in this content age, when you see deleted scenes on DVDs, people going, oh, you know, we had to cut that out because it slowed things down. You know, it stopped the story, and this terrible fear that you're going to lose the attention of yeah. the audience because, you know, they're used to 40-second TikTok videos or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's no concern about that here. I kept forgetting that Cooper's recovering from a gunshot wound. Yeah, he really struggles, doesn't yeah. he? To, uh... Yeah, it feels like he should be far further forward than that in his recovery. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it was literally the next day. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, but... but it, it, it is. It's kind of moments like that that make it Twin Peaks, and they're not. They're not things that jump out at you, like you know, when people talk about Twin Peaks being weird or quirky or whatever. There's nothing. There's, there's nothing contrived about that. If anything, it's it's super realistic. It's just the fact that the show took the time to do that is one of the things that makes it what it is, you yeah. know, and makes it unique. Mm. Um, so they they show some pictures to Ronette. Uh, and she freaks out when she sees the uh, picture of Bob. Um, Quite right, too. Yeah, she's right to do that. Um, we get a scene between... Um, there's lots of good Ben and Jerry in this episode where they're talking about the smoked cheese pig and the ledgers, and the scene ends with them um, toasting marshmallows and how Jerry gets... You know, Jerry's like, marshmallows, get get the hickory sticks. 
And this kind of gets back to the fact that there's a the food thing with them and this whole sensualist thing. So much of it is kind of you get the feeling it's like an arrested development thing mm. that they both crave their childhood. You yeah. know, they're they're often getting lost in a nostalgic reverie that's often brought on by food or sex or um, other sensory stimuli. Yeah. You know, um, and also it's just it's just amusing as well. Um, there's a really good scene between that kind of informs both characters between the log lady and Major Briggs, and I love mm. the fact that there's a call back to her sp- spitting her gum out in the last episode yeah. when Norma calls yeah, her out yeah. on that. There's a real um, respect between the two of those characters, which you know the log lady looks at most people with. A bit of disdain yeah. going on. Even with Briggs, there's a little bit of that there. Like she's like, "You wear shiny medals. Is that pride?" There's a little, there's a no, little bit but, of that. But they do, they do respect each other. Like she takes the time to ask if he can hear her log, and when he says no, she doesn't poo-poo him or yeah. think he's a ridiculous man for not being able to hear. I think it. That the thing that's interesting about that scene is more the respect he shows her, in the sense that does he isn't phased at all. But I, um, I think I I didn't find that surprising at all, considering... Oh, it's not surprising. It's no, completely no, in character. But, like, considering in the last episode you've had that moment between him and his son um, talking about this dream and knowing... Well, no, he says it's a vision, doesn't he? Yeah. Not a dream. And, um, and obviously he holds great importance in the paranormal, the psychic, whatever it the is. The spiritual side. The spiritual side. So being presented with a log that, according to this woman, has, you know, is talking to her, yeah. he just sees that as another form of a vision or a message or whatever it is. Well, he doesn't think it's weird. Um, he doesn't judge her, but also um, he he isn't offended. Like when she says to him, you know, is that pride? And he's like, no, no, what, what, what's it? He says like. Um, like- no, um, something about um, uh, there's pride in the task or something. No, yeah, no, says, something job. is its own reward. What's the. Um, work is its own reward. The work is its own reward. Like pride just obscures it. Yeah. And. Um, then, you know, she says, "Have you been introduced to the log?" And he's like, "No, no, I, I don't believe I have." But, it, but it's just—he's just so accepting, mm. you know, of that. And, and it makes you sort of go, "I wonder what else that dude's seen." Yeah, yeah, and and it is odd because although they're very different characters, and there's something very childlike because you get the feeling that uh, what you get from the log lady is a sense of trauma. Mm. A sense that she's retreated mm. from the world into this, a bit like Nadine in some ways, yeah. into this childlike state because she can't cope with some awful thing that's happened. Mm. You know, presumably the, the the death of her husband in the fire on their on their wedding night. Mm. Um, whereas Briggs is a very um, he's outward looking kind of. Um, Person, I mean, he says to Cooper about you know the importance of uh, you know following orders and all of that, but mm. at the same time, there does seem to be, and I think this is what you're getting at, maybe a weird sense of kinship between the log lady mm. and, and Briggs. They are they are kindred spirits. Yeah, they, they feel like yeah. characters who should be talking to each other. Well, you sort of wonder whether, um. In some ways, they they have spoken before, or like I know that they don't seem to know each other, but yeah. it's almost like, do you know each other in a different form? Well, it's almost as though they've both got an understanding of some unknowable force, but their understanding of it is coming from completely different places. Mm. But it's they still share and are mm. bonded. By this mutual understanding of something, yeah. you know, and what that thing is, it, you know, is an abstraction. Mm. Um, but um, I just, I really love um, 
Major Bruce. Yeah. I just think he's such a great character. That's why I was so happy when he was when he popped up in season one of the X-Files because it was like, oh, we get because he's basically playing the same character. And he yeah. even does in Beyond the Sea, uh, the first great episode of the X-Files, he gets to deliver a long a major Briggsy kind of, mm. you know, piece of dialogue as well. Um one of the things that I've noted noted about this episode is that the bit with the fly where Lucy's in the office and you've got this loud buzzing mm. is there's low Lynch has got a really weird propensity for over the top goofy sound effects and this is something about David Lynch that people forget people always think about the weirdness and the darkness and all and the tones but Lynch isn't above just being really goofy mm. as well I mean right after Twin Peaks him and Mark Frost did a sitcom called On the Air it ran for one season and it was starring the guy who played Albert and the guy who played Dick Tremaine Mm. And it was about a kind of Saturday Night Live type TV show in the 50s. And that was really goofy uh, in a similar way. And I just wanted to mention that because I think that's something that people don't mention that often. And it's got to be the biggest fucking fly in the world with the sound it was making. Well, it's like in the last episode <laughs> when Donna walked in, somebody, you heard the wolf whistle. Yeah. And there's no one else in the office. It was just this really weird, yeah. goofy choice from a yeah. sound, sound perspective. And you, you get something like that in most of the Lynch episodes. Um, we get the conversation with Andy Andy and Lucy about him being sterile. Uh, we get Hank's domino key ring as well, which, you know, get me from, get me uh, for Christmas from Etsy. Um, Fuck no. We learn that Hank was a bookhouse boy. Um, ben Horn calls Truman about Audrey. I love how unbothered he is. He's like... When Truman's like, how long she been gone? And he's like, mm-hmm. a couple of days. A couple of days. But I get the, you know... They've got a big house. Well, they live yeah. in a hotel, for Christ's sake. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, I mean, I could imagine that, you know, she'd go roaming and it's entirely Plus, possible that you wouldn't see You know, see they're not exactly close. Yeah, you know. And he'd be off, he'd be off whoring and, you yeah. know, setting fire to things. Mm. Um, I love how uh, we get another Lucy taking forever to connect them on the phone <laughs> yeah. because she's just explaining every, every step of the way. Mm. Uh, that's another... Um, sort of Lynchian just torturing the audience with how long stuff takes. Um, we see Leland um, and the Horn brothers uh, get really annoyed with him because he's already uh, taken it upon himself to uh, call the uh, Icelanders yep. about what's going on. And then we see um, Leland see the picture of Bob and he says, I know him from my fan- my grandfather's summer house. Mm. Uh, Going to get into spoilers for the next minute. Yeah. Uh, for people who haven't seen Twin Peaks before. But this is interesting because what that tells me is Leland doesn't know that he's the killer. No. Leland doesn't know that he's Bob. What Leland is remembering is remembering his own ab- abuse as a child. Yeah. The summer house, the neighbour, and again, whether it's metaphorical, whether it's real, it could have just been that Bob was a neighbour of his grandparents who abused him and he's transferred that abuse onto Laura and that abuse is represented by the man Mm. who abused him or it could be that he's a spirit or whatever. Mm. Um, But I think that that to me is the most compelling piece of evidence that Leland isn't consciously responsible for... I I 100% believe that Leland is just a vessel. Yeah. And that Bob is the spirit. Yeah. Um, I sort of feel like, you know, the the neighbour, you know, up at the cabin wouldn't have actually been Bob. It would have been whoever the neighbour was and turned into Bob, yeah. Yeah. you know. like, But perhaps he only knows him as Bob because he only ever saw him when he was being I think abused. it changes at different points in the show. I, I, and I don't think there necessarily is. I mean, one, one particular reading. I think if you've got a particular reading more power to you and there's nothing to disprove that. My own personal feeling is that it evolves and it changes and it's all of these things. Mm. You know, I don't think any of them are wrong. No. You know, I, I, I think that Bob can mean, um, you know, th- there are times, where, at this point in Twin Peaks, watching this episode tonight, my firm belief is that Leland was abused by Bob, who was a real person, who mm. was a neighbour, and um, he uh, abused his daughter and in the logic of the TV show, that abuse, that generationally transferred abuse, is represented by the figure of Bob. And what, what Madeline sees, she's not really seeing Bob. 
she's just feeling the presence in that house of this generational abuse. In three but or four episodes in, of time, I'll feel differently. Um, Donna's house. They're not in. Oh yeah, house. they are, aren't they? Sorry, yeah. Okay, well, she's just experiencing the spirit of it, the feeling yeah. of this thing that happened, um, because it's going to happen to her. The other, the other way you could read it is to say that he's using the figure of Bob to dissociate from what he's doing. To yeah, Laura. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and again, you know, I think- he can't cope with knowing that he's the one who does these things or feels this way or wants these exactly and, and, and if bobby is a representation of this generational abuse that doesn't absolve morally absolve bobby Lena, isn't of course. bob sorry i thought you said bobby no it's bob he doesn't absolve leland um but no, no, no. but i do think though that at another point in the show we are told that Le- that bob is real hmm. uh, and that leland genuinely doesn't know that he has done these things. And there, there are things in this episode, because mm. there's no reason for that. And I think also maybe Bob likes to have fun. Bob likes to fly close to the sun and kind of, mm. you know, when you hear about like serial killers who write to the newspaper to goad the detectives, yeah. I think there's a little bit of uh, a little, little bit of that going, going on. Mm. Um, so, um, when he walks out, um, Jerry says to um, Ben, is this real or some strange and twisted dream? Uh, we see Leo in his coma. Uh, we get an ominous slow zoom on Leo, which is TV shorthand for he's going to come back and mm. she's going to get real. Um, we see Emery Battis um, from the department store's weird sex scenario where he's got he's tied up with uh, his toenails painted uh, an ice bucket and a cowgirl vacuuming, which is very specific. I mean, how do you stumble across hey, that? It sounds like a standard Saturday night to me. Yeah, well, that's what we. That's why I'm rushing through this, get, Hannah. Yeah, blowing gag, ready, darling. Get, I'll get my chaps on, shall I? Um, we see Bobby and Shannon. Was oh, it you who's vacuuming? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, cool. Uh, we see um, Don't Bobby to move the furniture. Yeah, we see Bobby. I <laughs> know. Oh, actually, you'd just be criticising me with. Yeah. <laughs> Missed a bit. Um, <laughs> we see Bobby and Shelley enjoying some fifties um, blues music, and they talk about the disability um, benefit mm. for Leo if he stays home. Um, Shelley, all I thought in that scene is Shelley never learns. No, like come on. Yeah, yeah. No, she really doesn't. Um, we see Cooper talking to Diana, Diane about Windham Earl. We see Major Briggs come and see him, and this is an interesting scene because. Um, you know, he, this is where things feel really supernatural because, mm. well, paranormal because, um, you know, Briggs talks about how um, he works on this project where on deep space probes where mm. they get like all this space gibberish back. But in the case of Twin Peaks, um, you know, they, they um, actually know he hasn't said that yet. I'm thinking about a future episode. Um, they get the, the message that amongst all of the, you know, junk code, the owls are not what they seem, which of mm. course is something that the giant said to Cooper. Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. Uh, Cooper yeah, Cooper, exactly. Cooper. So it's he knows it's for him. Mm. Um, we get the um, scene in the Haywards household of um, James and Donna and. <laughs> I mean, okay, elephant in the room here. This is kind of quite a derided scene from Twin Peaks in the, from the James haters. But I know it's one of David Lynch's favourite scenes in Twin Peaks. He's actually called it, he said that it's one of the Eye of the Duck scenes in Twin Peaks. And I agree because to me, it, it's, so, it's such a complex scene. Because first of all, you've got the kind of non-diegetic ridiculousness of it. So, you know, there's like other instruments coming. Yeah. You know, so it's not real. That's what no, that's what we've been not. told. Yeah. You've got the fact that the ridiculous earnestness of it, and also just the, the fact that he's singing in this falsetto that's so just wrong for how he looks. Even though it is really James Marshall singing mm. that and playing the playing that he did record it. Um, but to me, this scene is Twin Peaks. This is Twin Peaks in a microcosm. It's teenagers in um, living in a 50s rock and roll movie, making googly eyes at each other, singing doo-wop, and it's completely earnest, but it's just slightly wrong. 
There's yeah. something just a little bit off about it, but and, and a little bit non-real. And it skirts, it rides that line between the ridiculous and the sublime. And that's what it's all about, you know? It it's kind of amazing watching um the teenagerness of it. Yeah. Um from a from a perspective of middle age, you know, of middle age, because you know, we've all been in that situation where you feel like you would die if you didn't have that person, that yeah. boy or girl. And I, I, I was, what you got to remember is I was 17 when Twin yeah, Peaks yeah. was on, so I was the age of the characters. But the thing that gets me is James and Donna have done their, you know, they're meant for each other and it's it's always been each other and it's, you know, soulmates and blah blah And here he is singing away, making sex eyes at Maddie. No, but you don't see who he's looking at in that scene. But they, they are they're eyeing each other up. No, she's eyeing him up. You don't know if he's eyeing her up. He is eyeing her up. In that scene, I don't think he's looking at either of them. I think he's lost in his own self-indulgence. If you actually watch the scene really closely, he's actually looking off. He's not looking at either but, of them. But I like it because it's so... It is... That's teenage love. It is exactly right, yeah. Like... You know, thinking that this one person, you know, you'll never exist without them. And and the next thing you know, your hormones have found someone else who is the next greatest it's, thing. It's so transient and self-indulgent and dramatic and ridiculous. And that's what this scene is, you but, know. And the best thing I think about the girls being together on the floor, how they are, is because Maddie is... Laura Palmer with dark hair. Yeah, yeah. She's basically a hybrid of Donna and Laura. Yeah, yeah. So she's kind of what James is attracted to. Yeah. Like the parts of Laura, the parts of Donna. Yeah. And Donna's together. been trying to be like Laura this season as well. Yeah. And so what Donna's doing is kind of pushing him towards Maddie because she's behaving like Laura. The other thing is, as well, is if you remove it from the ridiculousness of the scene, I think it's a great song. I genuinely like the song. I know you I think it's... it's, No, but you say that, like, with a sense of mockery, and I don't get it. I think it's a really good, beautiful, weird song. I know you love it. I know you do. Okay, but I I thought there was an undercurrent of, bless you, sort of going on there. Condescension, that's the word I was thinking I can't... I don't not like it. I don't, I, I'm not asking you to. I'm not. But no, no. Let me finish. It's not that I don't like it. I just don't think I would ever get romantic to it. Well, neither would I. I mean, I, but I think it's a really great piece of Twin Peaks music. It's got that. It just rides that line, mm. um, and it's just so in the same way that a lot of the Judy Cruz stuff does, where it sounds like fifties girl group music, but it almost sounds like dead girls, <laughs> like a fifties girl group that died in a crash and came back from the dead. You know, it's got this sort of. It just makes me think of the lead singer of Wheatus singing the girls' part in Teenage Dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it was funny as well because James Marshall tells a story about how uh, Lynch said to him, "Oh, you, you're going to sing a song on the show," and he's like, "Great, you know, I'm a singer." He was in a band, you know, he mm. played guitar, he sang, but he was like a, you know, blues mm. rock yeah. singer, and Lynch started playing it, and he's just like, "Dude, that's like a little bit above my register." He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's going to be a falsetto," and he's like. Uh, okay, uh, that's not how I sing, but I'll try. Mm. You know, so clearly Lynch knew that he mm. was pushing him into yeah. this sort of like uh, I mean, it, nothing happens by accident, you know. No. And and the framing I of mean, the scene I love as well. It's a hard song to sing. Well, I mean, kudos to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, the way that they're sat on the floor, it is, it's such a teenage thing as well, isn't it? Like the girls going to, you know, whose boyfriends are in bands and they go and watch them rehearse and it's kind of like, my boyfriend's in a band. It's that kind of, you know, the fact that he's sat on a chair and they're sat he, on the floor. Why is he kneeling on, on the floor with one knee? It seems really... Well, he's sort of sat on the edge of, it, of the it chair. It just seems like a really uncomfortable yeah, position. Yeah, yeah, again, it's, it's a deliberate framing. Yeah. It's just a weird choice to have mm. that sort of like... 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, Donna um, freaks out and, and sort of kisses him and asserts her sort of sexual mm. uh, ownership of him. And then um, the phone goes and Harold Smith, the, the shut-in, uh, mm. the lonely soul from um, the Meals on Wheels calls. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when we see Bob slowly walk in the room. And this is a great Lynchian scene, a bit like, you know, the, the freaky person behind the dumpster in Mulholland Drive where the, the horror of it is that it doesn't stop. Mm. Like he does, it's not a jump scare. He slowly no, walks he comes in, right into the, and camera. then just walks towards the camera and just keeps going and keeps going. And mm. you're just like, you almost sit back in your chair because mm. you're like, shit. Yeah, it just feels like a real violation of the rules of television. You know that somebody would do that, and you know, and the and the way that Cheryl Lee plays Maddie freaking out is, I'm convinced that it was this scene that made David Lynch think that he could do Fire Walk With Me because when he hired Cheryl Lee, she was an actress, but she was also a model. Mm. And basically, he hired her to play a corpse. He had no idea that she could even act. Mm. And the way that she plays the trauma of this scene is so powerful and reminds me retroactively of her performance in Fire Walk With Me that I really believe that Lynch saw something in her in this scene and thought, well, she could do it. She could actually like play the last seven days of Laura Palmer and all of the horror mm. that that in- involves. Yeah. And you, you sort of get a little glimpse of that here. Mm. And then we um, we finish up with Cooper going to bed and uh, we get some images of the giant waving his hand in front of him. We see Bob with the owl uh, projected onto him. Mm-hmm. We get a replay, a slow motion, freaky replay of Sarah Palmer running down the stairs under the ceiling fan the, yep. the day that Laura Palmer went missing. Um, and we see um, Audrey calls Cooper and says that she saw him in his tuxedo, which presumably will tip him off as to where she is. Uh, and then we see that she gets caught by Blackie. So uh, any final thoughts, Hannah, before we wrap up? No, just thoroughly enjoyed it. Looking forward to carrying on. Bring on some feedback from our listeners yes, as well. Yes, which you can send us at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave comments for us on our YouTube channel. Positive feedback on Spotify and on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I should say, would be appreciated. Also, I check out our friend shows. So, uh, Hannah, what are we talking about next time? Next episode is called The Man Behind the Glass. Uh, synopsis says, Renette is attacked in her hospital bed by an unseen person. Jean Renault, brother of Jacques and Bernard, plans to blackmail Ben Horn for the release of Audrey. Donna meets with Harold Smith, a shut-in who had befriended Laura. It is directed by Leslie Linker Glatter and written by Robert Angles. Alrighty, well, I will look forward to that. In the meantime, get that feedback in and we will see you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you.